0: Science story, huh?
1: Is NYU scientists—they uh, it's felt, 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 felt right, right. I was so and excited. I just felt well, well. I had figured
2: it wow. out. It was like, that well. golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker. And this week we're presenting stories about relationships that stand the test of time. So I think it's appropriate that this week I'm joined by my little brother, Dan. Say hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, Dan was my first forever friend and the first scientist I ever knew before I met Ben and Brian when the Story Collider got started in 2010. And it's also appropriate because June is Pride Month, and this month every episode will feature someone who identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer, sharing a story that connects this identity to science in some way. And uh, I know that this is something that Dan has dealt with for a long time in his life, um, I remember back in high school, Dan, you had an experience with a lab partner, right?
0: Uh, yes. He said that, uh, gay people can't do science. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh man, he should really look up Alan Turing.
0: <laughs> you know,
2: I've, I have not, that's something that I have never heard elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I, I was pretty shocked by it too. <laughs>
2: so he just, like, refused to work with you, right?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: And then what happened when you told your teacher about it?
0: Um, my teacher wasn't very gay-friendly either and kind of agreed with him.
2: <laughs> he just told you, deal with it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. And it was the first time in my life that I realized that there are extra obstacles for people like my brother in science, even starting as early as in high school, that there is just extra levels of bullshit that they have to deal with sometimes. And it broke my heart that my brother's, you know, passion for science and for learning would be stifled in that way. So I'm really proud to share these stories with you this month and especially today in this episode. Our first story is from Allison Smith. It was recorded in November 2017 at Caveat in New York. The theme that night was consciousness.
1: So, my father woke me up every morning with the bones of St. Gerard and the bones of St. John Noonan. They were relics. They were disks of copper, about the size of a half dollar, and they had a little glass plate on the front and underneath the glass, there was a little pile of white powder, the white powder, the pulverized bone of the saint, yeah. So. These relics lived on my dad's bedside table in my parents' unheated bedroom. And this was upstate New York, so it got cold. So I woke every morning to the feel of ice-cold metal on my forehead and my father's mumbled prayers. If you can guess, I was Catholic. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, you know, science or facts or information that shaped our world. It was God. But there are a lot of ways to be Catholic. And we weren't so much like Pope Vatican Catholic. We were in the Church of Dad, and in the Church of Dad, like the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they were kind of like this goofy group of people who loved to do pratfalls and tell off-color jokes. They were like a religious three stooges. Yeah, and, and in the Church of Dad, all of the Bible stories had their own special kind of twist. My brother and I love that. And so our favorite story that we always ask Dad to tell us was... The wedding at Cana, right? Okay, so anyway, that is when Jesus performs his first miracle. So this is how it goes in the church of Dad. Mary and Joseph are invited to their neighbor's daughter's wedding. And Joseph hates weddings. So he pretends to have a cold and sneaks off to his workshop and whittles on something. And Mary looks at Jesus and says, "You're going to be my plus one." So they go to the wedding, Jesus hooks up with his buddies and proceeds to get stinking drunk. Like they drink so much, they drink the entire supply of alcohol for the reception. Mary finds out. She is pissed. She goes to Jesus, and she said, "Look what you did, you bum." You and your no good friends drank all the alcohol and now there's going to be no party. I can never show my face in this town again. And Jesus thinks, oh, God. <laughs> I really effed up this time. She is never going to let me live this one down. I, I got to do something big, really big. So he turns water Into wine. And he saves the reception. Yeah. And that began a very famous career that ended very badly for Jesus. Yeah. You see, because in the Church of Dad's version of the life of Christ the reason Jesus started performing miracles and thereby garnered some disciples and a bunch of people started following him. And because of that, the local authorities were looking at him. And then he was ultimately crucified is because at a party he needed to get his mom off his back. (laughs) Yeah. So you can imagine as a kid, we were like, the Bible is just so cool. My brother and I would run around after my dad and be like, tell us another one. Tell us about the lady who got stoned. And <laughs> which, by the way, was called in the Church of Dad, what to do when you're about to get stoned. <laughs> so it was really just idyllic. And my brother and I, we, we just believed so deeply. We felt that we were carried in the hand of God. And we had an unshakable faith. And then something happened. Something so heartbreaking that my faith was gone in an instant. It's 1984. I'm 15. My brother Roy is 18. He gets in the family car one morning and drives off to work. And he never came back. Roy died that morning in a car accident, and my faith was gone. It wasn't like I said, I can't believe in you if you would do this. It it, it was like I had heard music. There was music all around us my whole life, the song my dad had been singing to me since the day I was born, it just stopped. There was silence. A silence so vast and terrifying, I was afraid to speak of it. But I began to change. Two years later, I fell in love with a classmate at my school But it was an all-girls school. I fell in love with a girl. I was gay. When my parents found out, they were furious. I mean, look at it from their point of view. They were desperately trying to keep this heartbroken family together, and they knew one thing. We were going to spend eternity in heaven together. We would be reunited with Roy there, and then look what I did. While they were in heaven with Roy, I would be in hell. So they raged, and they threatened, and they bargained. And then they sat me down, and they gave me an ultimatum. They said, you can be in this family, or you can be gay, but you can't have both. And when I said, I can't help who I am, they disowned me. For a long time, I didn't have any contact with my parents. And the silence, that just grew. Years passed. And then I got a phone call. My mother was dying. So I went to see her. And I said, Mom, now could you accept me? She couldn't. And she died. More years passed and I got another phone call. My father had Alzheimer's, so I went to see him. Hi, Dad. And he just looked at me, you know, from my feet up to my head and back down again.
0: And then he said,
1: where you been? I've been looking for you for years. cuz it it turned out the silver lining of alzheimers he forgot he was homophobic <laughs> but he, he didn't forget god or anything he just forgot the fire and brimstone part and so like we were together again <laughs> And for four years, my dad and I, we had the best time. We had like a million ice cream sundays, and we went for endless walks around the nursing home where he lived, and, and we went shopping. He suddenly loved shopping for clothes, like men's clothes, women's clothes. He didn't care anymore. He loved it all. He wore it all. And, and, and best of all, he loved my partner, Cindy. He couldn't remember her name, but anytime she left the room, he would look around, and he would say, where'd the other one go? <laughs> yeah. So since he was so devout, I, um, I made sure that he could go to church every day, and when I could, I took him. And um, it was so remarkable to see him in church, because as soon as the liturgy started, he sat up straight. His cloudy eyes got really clear, and he followed and gave every response, letter perfect, on cue. It was like his faith was stored in some other more robust part of his body than his brain. So So, one day, after mass, we go shopping. I take them to the department store and we pick out some shirts and While we're in line, ready to pay for them, this crazy storm blows into town. It's summertime, and it just rains like cats and dogs and Even though we're inside, we can hear the thunder and through the glass doors, we can like see the sky get dark and it starts flashing with lightning and I look over at my dad and his eyes are huge and he drops the shirts he starts shaking and then he starts pacing around like a caged animal and I realize he doesn't know that this is just weather he he thinks this is the end of the world and and, and and everyone's looking at me like what's up with that guy and you better fix it and the store's about to close and it's dinner time and I gotta get him back to the home and so I have no choice I pay for the shirts I grab his hand and we walk together through the automatic doors out into the storm and it's Worse than I thought. It's like one of those crazy summer storms that really kind of is like the world is going to end for a couple of minutes. I mean, the sky is pitch black, and it's the rain is coming down so hard. It's kind of like they're just dumping buckets of water on us. But we started, so we're going to keep going. I hold him tighter, and we go straight for the car. We get halfway there, and there's this huge crack of thunder. And my dad, he lets go of my hand, and he just starts running out away from me and then into the traffic and I'm like dad 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 Dad, come back you know it's not funny and he he doesn't understand and he starts going even further and the cars are whizzing by and I'm like dad it's just rain please dad please and and he's not listening to me and I just think oh my god I can't Lose you again, and I close my eyes and I say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And when I open my eyes, my, my dad is stopped. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. And he turns around. And he looks right at me. Blessed are you among women. And he walks over, and he stands right beside me. And I get his hand, and we make it to the car. Thank you.
2: That was Allison Smith. Allison is a writer and performer, and her writing has appeared in McSweeney's, The London Telegraph, The New York Times, and others. Her memoir, Name All the Animals, was named one of the top ten books of the year by People, and was shortlisted for the Book Sense Book of the Year Award. She has been awarded Barnes & Noble Discover Award, the Judy Grand Prize, and a Lambda Literary Award. The Grand Prize winner of 2017's co-festival Story Slam, Allison has also played Jane Jacobs in the Amazon series The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Before we move on to our next story today, a quick word from our sponsor Coco Chanel, Martha Stewart, Julia Child. You know these amazing women and how successful they are, but do you know their real stories? If you're a fan of the Story Clider, then you'll love the Great Women of Business podcast from Parcast. Focusing on the little-known details, Great Women in Business explains things like how Debbie Field started her empire at age 20 and how Coco Chanel was one of the first to understand branding as we now know it. With captivating, well-researched stories, each episode takes you through the harrowing journeys and struggles that led these women to greatness and teaches the business principles she utilized to the next generation of great women. This 12-episode series premieres on June 5th. You can find episodes on Brownie Wise, Martha Stewart, and Ruth Handler, co-founder of Mattel and inventor of the Barbie doll, among others, every Tuesday. Visit Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find the Story Collider, and search for "Great Women of Business." Again, that's "Great Women of Business." Or visit parcast.com/business to start listening. That's parcast. p a r c a s t dot com/business starting June 5th. All right, welcome back. Our second story today is from Peter Brannan. It was recorded in February 2018 at Caveat in New York. The theme that night was destiny.
0: So I was driving into the desert, um in West Texas, about 120 miles east of El Paso. And I just visited the Guadalupe Mountains. And um, I'd gone to the Guadalupe Mountains because uh, I wanted to learn more about the worst thing that had ever happened. And the Guadalupe Mountains are sort of a weird place to look for that because they're actually quite beautiful. And um, part of the beauty of, of the Guadalupe Mountains is that they're not really mountains at all. It's actually an ancient reef from 260 million years ago when Texas was underwater. And, um, if you know what you're looking for, when you're hiking up the Guadalupe Mountains, you can see that you're just stepping on sponges and corals and bits of seashell from squid-like animals and things like trilobites. Um, it's it's sort of like this petrified aquarium in the middle of the, of the desert. And um, it's been said that you know hiking up the Guadalupe Mountains is about as close as you can get to scuba diving in this ancient sea. So it's just an incredible place. And the other interesting thing about it and the reason why... Um, I was there is because I was researching and writing a book on the worst mass extinctions in the history of life. And shortly after this reef was formed, um, almost everything in it, everything you see on your hike um, up the mountains and almost everything on the planet went extinct in the single worst mass extinction in the history of life on earth and the worst one by far. It's this event called the Permian mass extinction 252 million years ago. And one of the other, one of the scary things about that mass extinction among a lot of things is that it's thought to be caused by this huge injection of carbon dioxide into the air, which caused runaway global warming and ocean acidification and all these things that we're worried about today. Um, so I'm driving into the desert, and you know my car is sort of filled with um, uh, wrappers from gross gas station food, and my radio is just sort of searching for a station, and I'm all alone. I'm, I'm thinking about this catastrophe that um, almost ended life on Earth, but I'm also thinking about this more personal catastrophe, um, because in the months before... Um, I experienced something that sort of felt like my world was ending too, which is that my mom died. Um, And so everyone thinks that their mom's the best, but my mom was the best. Um, She was brilliant and funny and generous and warm. And she was a lifelong children's librarian at uh, public schools. And when she retired, this love of books and learning, she sort of continued it. And she got a master's degree in divinity and wrote a thesis on um, the architecture of French modernist chapels. So she's just incredibly smart and, this erudition would come up in just casual conversation with her in some sort of amusing ways because she also had this really thick Boston accent that I'm not going to reproduce here, but she, in, you know, in a typical exchange, I remember one time I was I was giving her grief for um, watching her favorite soap opera, which was One Life to Live, which I just thought was horribly sleazy, and she said, no, you, know, you just don't understand it, um, and in her words, it was actually magical realism par excellence. <laughs> so she was wicked smart, and she was wicked funny, and, and now I'd never get to see her again, and I'd never get to talk to her again, and driving through the desert is a great place to go to feel alone, and this was probably as alone as I'd ever felt in my life, and, you know, in my rear view, I had this extinct world, and in front of me, there was this desert, and I just lost my mom, and, you know, I was just overwhelmed with this, this sort of bone-deep feeling that, you know, all of this, all of life was just sort of absurd and contingent. It could just be taken away at any moment for no reason, and you know, I was so overwhelmed by this feeling that I actually had a panic attack, and I had to pull over onto the side of the road. And when that passed, I was just overwhelmed by this wave of grief that you know maybe I'd been repressing. Um, so it also might not have been the most psychologically healthy thing to be doing, to be driving around the desert thinking about mass extinctions. But you know, this is what I do for fun. So, um, so if it's not clear yet, I was in a really dark place. And in the months before, as sort of death became a more tangible presence in our house, my mom was desperate to talk about it, and. I was just in complete denial, and I didn't, want, I didn't want to acknowledge it, and, you know, it's one of my biggest regrets that I wasn't braver, and to have the, these conversations that she wanted to have. She would ask me um, what I thought happened after we died, and I said I, I didn't know, and I tried to change the subject, and she asked me if we would meet again, and where we'd meet again, and I said I didn't know, and I tried to change the subject, and, you know, as she became more um, accepting of what was happening, I became more frantic, and you know, more deeper in denial. And it sort of reminded me of that feeling when you're in the ocean and you see that there's a giant wave that's about to crash on you and you, you look to the shoreline to see if, you know, you can make it out in time. And um, you, you realize that you can't. And I think my mom, when she saw this wave was gonna crash and she wasn't gonna make it back to shore, she sort of, you know, accepted it with this incredible grace and I like to think she dove into the wave and sort of merged with it. And, but in, in the meanwhile, I was sort of tumbling in the white water and the months afterwards, um, but before she died she found this trove of her old journals and she said something that, that stuck with me which was um, she she said she didn't recognize the young anxious girl who was who had written these journals even though it was herself and she said it's amazing how many different people you are over your lifetime and at first i didn't you know I didn't see a connection between you know the geology and the mass extinction stuff I was researching and this personal you know, sort of tragedy I was going through and but those words stuck with me, and I, I came to realize, and maybe this is kind of you know, a tangent, but I, I came to realize that they were sort of teaching me a very similar lesson, which is, it's incredible how many different planets our Earth has been over its lifetime. So for instance, my mom's from Boston, and I had just learned that you know, Boston sits on rock that is ocean floor from the deep sea that had rifted off of Africa, which was near the South Pole 500 million years ago, in the sea that was filled with alien creatures. And um, geology was filled with these weird revelations about places that were familiar to me and suddenly they were unfamiliar. So for instance, this theater sits on top of rock that's called Cambrian Schist, which is not a dirty word, but um, (laughs) it's similarly, it's this ocean floor rock um, from the dawn of animal life. Um, And so my apartment in Brooklyn sits on top of um, basically a dump heap that was left there by uh, Ice Age glaciers 10, 15,000 years ago, but if you keep digging down below that, you hit these red clays that are from a uh, river delta from when there were, that would have been home to monsoons and dinosaurs. Um, and I learned that there were times in Earth's history when there was ice in the tropics and there was other times when there were uh, crocodiles in the North Pole. And I think my mom was shocked that something as solid seeming as identity could be so in flux over time. And I was s- sort of learning the, the same lesson about entire worlds that, you know, Mountains would be pushed up and worn away, and whole oceans would open and close over time. You know, I loved George Harrison. I love the song, All Things Must Pass, and geology took this insight to an extreme. You know, my hometown and my apartment and this theater and everywhere I've ever been and loved would someday be at the bottom of the ocean or at the top of a mountain or, um, you know, in the middle of a desert or hundreds of miles underground in the Earth's mantle, and someday it might be in a black hole, you know. Everything is in flux, and over time, the only constant is change. And I was told that the, you know, the only thing that could help heal the sorts of wounds that I had experienced was the passage of time. And in geology, I was experiencing the passage of time at its most, you know, intense form. And strangely, it was sort of, you know, grasping with these ideas was one of the more comforting things that uh, that I found in in this time. And that might sound strange because you might think like considering your tiny place in the universe can make you feel very small, and it might be sort of a scary exercise. And there's definitely something scary about um, the sorts of mass extinctions and things that I was researching. And that's why I felt such dread when I was in West Texas. But I came to realize that that was only half the story. And, you know, I, there's not everything. The world didn't end after the worst mass extinction of all time. It didn't end after any of the mass extinctions. The other half of the story is the recovery. And that's just as interesting a story as the disaster. So 20 million years after the Permian mass extinction, the first dinosaurs show up, the first crocodiles show up, even the first mammals show up, the coral reefs came back. And what was lost was lost forever. But what emerged from the wreckage, these surviving pieces went on to build this incredible new, beautiful, amazing world that endured for hundreds of millions of years. And similarly, when my mom died, it hit me with the impact of an asteroid and you know, what I had lost, I had lost forever. But what she left behind was this, this legacy um, this legacy of kindness and generosity and curiosity and warmth and humor. And these were pieces that I could rebuild with after, after disaster. Um, so there's no recovering from losing a loved one. And, but it was true what people said as time went on, the passage of time really is it can heal. And um, a sort of equilibrium returned to my life. And, you know, I stopped having panic attacks. Um, and in the meantime, geology had given me this incredible new view of life as this really miraculous um, and brief but miraculous gift. You know, I came to see life as sort of this microscopic slice of experience that was between these two eternities. And it's incredibly precious. And when you, when you lose a loved one, I don't think it's an occasion for um, anger necessarily, but it's, a, it's an occasion for, for profound gratitude. Um, that the universe ever conspired to bring about such a miracle in the first place as another human being. Um, And I just thought to myself, man, how lucky am I that I was cobbled out of air, sea, and mud, and I was woken up on this strange planet, four and a half billion years already in progress, and I have a few precious decades to explore it and to meet the wonderful people here, and that there's really no time to waste. Thank you.
2: that was Peter Brannan Peter is an award-winning science journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times the Atlantic, the Washington Post Wired, the Boston Globe, and others his book, The Ends of the World Volcanic Apocalypses Lethal Oceans, and Our Quest to Understand Earth's Past Mass Extinctions was recently published by ECHO The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Erin Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Paula Croxon, Sammy Abouzid, and me, Erin Barker. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat for hosting these shows and to love that stands the test of time. Thanks for listening.